0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Name Drop San Diego. I'm your host, Christy Totten. Name Drop is a podcast from the San Diego Union Tribune that is all about the fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. My guest this week is Dr. Susan Bucata. Dr. Bucata is the chair of the orthopedic department at UC San Diego, and she's only one of four women in the country to hold that position. She went to Harvard and Columbia and did her residency at the University of Rochester. She's a huge champion of diversity. She's a teacher to many. And what really struck me about her is how much she truly cares about people. I think it's really clear uh, from this interview and some of the amazing stories she tells. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Bukata.
1: Dr. Bukata, thank you so much for joining me on Name Drop San Diego. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So you're somewhat new to San Diego, is that right?
2: I am. I actually moved to San Diego and joined the faculty at UC San Diego Health in February of 2021. Um, I had been working at UCLA as the vice chair of orthopedics for the past nine years prior to that, but I'm a native New Yorker who wound up (laughs) shipping west a while ago. Yeah, how are you adjusting to San Diego? Are you liking it so far? I love it. Um, I love the environment and the people. I think there's You know, really two things in my life have always drawn me a little bit to San Diego. My father was very involved with the America's Cup um, doing television and film. And so I had a taste of San Diego several times through the 1980s and 1990s. And coming from New York in the springtime, San Diego was like the wonderland. It was beautiful and sunny and people were happy. And it, it, it always struck me as a place where you had a community that was engaged with nature and their environment. And, you know, coming from Los Angeles, my husband's comment was, well, if you're going to get transferred, get transferred to heaven. <laughs> and so I think that's the baseline we're coming from. Well, tell me your bio in your words. So you're from New York. You've been out West for a while. Yep. So I grew up um, in and around New York City, Uh, My father was involved first in journalism and public relations, and that morphed into television and film uh, type of opportunities, mostly live television sports. Um, So we always needed to be near New York because that's where live television came out of. Uh, Serial and film television came out of Los Angeles, but live television came out of New York. Um, And my mom who both my parents grew up in Western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. And my mother will tell you, it was always her dream to live in New York, to go to Broadway shows and museums and be able to participate in the culture and the energy of New York. So both of my parents kept us tight and close to New York. As my career progressed though, I wound up you know, doing, doing medical training in New York and then winding up in Rochester, New York. For my orthopedic training, I went to Rochester because I was always interested in the intersection between science and medicine, how we take things that we research in science and we put them into practical application for our patients, or how we take problems from our patients and we bring that back to the scientists, have them work on that problem, and then bring it back to the patients. And at the time in the mid-1990s um, that I was looking for my training spots, Rochester was one of the best places in the country to do that for orthopedic surgery, which is what my subspecialty in medicine is about. Um, I subsequently trained in cancer in New York, back in New York City at Sloan Kettering in the hospital for special surgery. And I also got training in rare bone diseases and bone fragility diseases big name, uh, you know, a long list of things. Most people, if they understood a word from that, it would be osteoporosis. So getting a better understanding of why bones break. And one of the most common diseases that affect us as we age is the disease of osteoporosis. So how do we take our understanding of osteoporosis and how do we take our understanding of some of these rare genetic diseases that we see and use that information for us to understand how bones break and how bones heal. So if you have something in common between a common disease and a rare disease, you are more likely to be on the right path towards an answer. And so I was very fortunate to be able to train in environments between Rochester and New York City that really allowed me to to gain a knowledge base in these areas and get exposed to people and patients and ideas to allow this to grow. Um, I then went back to the University of Rochester and practiced for several years before being recruited out to UCLA and now getting recruited to UC San Diego.
1: Well, I love what you said about um, the intersection of science and sort of the application of medicine. I think that's something we even as laymen have been thinking about in the past year with the the vaccine, right? Um, Right. but, But when you, when you assess that system and you know if you wanna give it a grade or when you just sort of try to explain it to people like me, how, how would you rate it? You know, is, how quickly does it happen? What
2: do you have to say about it? So, so for example, one project, I have a project that's finally coming out of a clinical trial and it's a high risk, high reward type of question. So we are looking at, can we preserve cartilage in the early stages of damage in arthritis? or could we regenerate it in the early stages of damage? And we actually knew all the way back in 1993, some of the signaling pathways that were in play um, in the joint, in the bone, and in the growth plates that help us to develop our bones, but we couldn't connect the dots. And so this trial is completing and people think, wow, this is coming from nowhere in rapid science. And I keep explaining, you know, we started on this in 1993 (laughs) and we had times when we had rapid progress and then we had times where we had gaps. We didn't know where to go next and we needed a technology like MRI or certain types of blood tests in order to be able to answer the next question. We might have known what we needed to look at but we had no way to measure it. And so many of these things are lifetimes of understanding. You brought up COVID vaccine and many people are nervous because they said, wow, you know, we said let's make vaccine and we made vaccine. What people don't understand is we've actually been researching the base for that vaccine, that mRNA com- uh, vaccine component for many years, looking at HIV and cancer. So we had tremendous experience with that base. We just haven't had a great way to connect it in a successful way to HIV or to certain types of cancers. And suddenly we had an opportunity from our experience with flu vaccines and other vaccines to take a technology that we really knew what to do and connect it in a way to something where we could solve the problem quickly. It takes resources, it takes money, It takes people to collaborate from a whole spectrum of areas to make that happen. But it is exciting when we can bring that intersection together of resources, of minds, of thinkers, of passion, and and also having a problem that we can solve in medicine. Um, In many ways, I, I, I laugh a little bit. I think the person I want to thank the most at each of the companies that made a vaccine is the person who's responsible for distribution because they get none of the glory and all of the responsibility. And, and that's something we think about in science is that it's we, we recognize the big wins, but we don't understand all of the work that's gone behind it before we, we can even get it up to the level where we can ask the question that we really want to ask.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I like the acknowledgement of all the work that came before, but the breakthrough that has to be so exciting too. You know, you're mentioning your clinical trial and really finding that missing link. So what have
2: been big breakthroughs, you know, for you? So for me, I think, you know, as a clinician scientist, the big breakthroughs for me have really been with my partners. Um, I will tell people my main focus when I started doing research is how do we help bone that's not healing well to heal. Not only why does it break, but once it breaks, how do we give it that push to help it to heal? Kids will heal almost no matter what you do to them. We all recognize as we get older, it doesn't quite heal as quickly. And and how do we help our systems do that? Well, I think the most important thing that happened to me in my science career was the fact that I was able to start doing things where i made 150% more bone. Like I could, you know, dramatically increase the amount of bone that was being made by the treatments we were giving. But we were making a lot of cartilage. And why that matters is cartilage is important in the early stages of how you heal a bone. You make cartilage first and then you form it into bone. But cartilage is also what lines your your bones to create your joints. And that cartilage is extremely important um, in order to preserve function, as well as prevent pain. So it's when that cartilage gets damaged, we get arthritis. It was working with other people in my lab, in my field, who looked at my data and said, wow, your bone stuff is interesting, but your cartilage stuff is intriguing. Like, what is it? Why is it? And being able to to leave my comfort zone I have tremendous knowledge in bone. I did not have a lot of knowledge in arthritis, but I really valued and appreciated the opinions and the skills of the people who were pointing these things out to me and said, okay, what would you do with this? And I had to pivot dramatically away from something I'd spent years training myself in, to follow the data, to follow the information, and to really build people around me who I trusted as co-investigators on this for us to say, could we ask a big question together? I would never have all of the expertise necessary to really answer this big question, but could we answer it together? They'd been looking for something and I just sort of fell into the well. And, And when they recognized that I had something in that well, we could then build upon it. And that I think has been the most wonderful thing about the whole experience. You know, our clinical trial, which is looking at a drug that we use for osteoporosis that also has a benefit to your joints is very important. It's something we can get to patients right away. And I will say it's not a home run, it's a solid double or a solid triple, but it is the first step that we can make into a field where we've been, we've been at a barrier for a long time and many people sitting there and gathering knowledge behind that barrier, but we haven't had the, the ladder to start to climb over. And this is one of the first times we can get over the wall. And so it this is probably not going to be what we land on 20 years from now, but it is going to help the person who's thinking right now find what that item is that we'll be using 20 years from now, that we can make affordable for people, accessible for people and effective for people.
1: I have a lot more questions for you about your career, but I also have a lightning round here, just some very random questions I jotted down, that I'd like to ask. Uh, One of the first ones is, what is your first memory?
2: You will laugh, my first memory is on the day that Richard Nixon resigned, all right? And so I learned how to read and the daily news headline was (laughs) he's out and I figured out the word out. And it just was like, you know, it's like, that is a very strange memory to have. But for me, it was the jubilation of I can read. Yes. Not fully understanding what I was reading.
1: That, um, that's, is incredible. that is like
2: my first memory. I was he's, about four years old. He's out. Yep. And now it's not, that's not, it's kind of hard to spell out. It doesn't follow the normal rules necessarily of but English language. <laughs> it was recognition. I think yeah. part of it, remember, this is the age of, in the 70s, it was about sight reading. And I think there were enough things, you know, in and out. And, mm-hmm. and there were enough things that started to make sense to me that it was just point blank recognition like that's a word i knew what that was and i knew what it meant and it's it just my dad i loved my dad because um he would always read the newspaper backwards so because he would start with the sports pages in new york the newspapers are vertical and the sports pages are in the back and the headlines are on the front the new york post and the daily news not, not exactly the times but we they had good sports sections and so he would always read the newspaper backwards and I had gotten into the, the habit of just mimicking him doing that. And I used to love when he would take us to the park, whether it was Central Park or, or you know, one of the other parks around New York and New Jersey, and he would sit on the bench while we would play and he would read the newspaper backwards. But because he did that, we generally would see the front page. And that's how it just, that was that moment of, I know what that is. That is so cool. I love that story. Um,
1: What is something that most people like, but you dislike?
2: Lima beans. I don't know. I think most people don't like that. Most People dislike Um, it. Yeah. Most people like that. I dislike. That's a hard one, actually. I think, I think I'm lucky in that I was raised to kind of keep an open mind to almost everything. And that you can, you can have things that you don't love, but there's still something about the experience. And sometimes you have to do it because it's a part of the overall experience. I actually will laugh. I don't mind driving. I don't love it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's the New Yorker that's, in me. Yeah, that's what I was People gonna in say. in California love to drive. I do not love to drive. Like I'd rather fly or take a train. I've used more public transportation than most of the people I know in Southern California because I just, I don't love driving. That's a good
1: one. It's not, yeah, very New Yorker. Uh, what is, well, you mentioned you're open-minded, what You know, what is something you discovered recently that you've enjoyed or you weren't expecting?
2: <laughs> so my kids, both my son and my daughter, are working, uh, my daughter just recently became an Eagle Scout, my son completed his Eagle Scout work and will be awarded very shortly his Eagle Scout. And part of Eagle Scouting is a lot of hiking and backpacking and sort of digging your own latrine type of things. And never in a million years did I think we as a family would be focusing vacations and trips and plans thinking that way. But it's gotten us all out and about and and in a, I I consider that a gift before we made this move and a gift before COVID, because it got me to start thinking about that and ways that we could spend time together as a family. And it became a survival mechanism during COVID, um, not only for our own health and, and exercise and energy, but for us as a family to have something that all four of us could participate in. And my family, both, both my, the family I grew up with and the family I have now, um, love sarcasm. So there's a certain amount of joy in, in complaining while you're hiking and you get to the <laughs> ridge and you appreciate the full beauty, but you can also have some funny conversations on the way up and the way down as you talk about the, the adventure in front of you. That's a great one. Um, Who's your hero? My mother, I would say, um, for a lot of reasons. I I think as I've gotten older, I appreciated the world that she entered into and how women like her helped women like me and my sisters to get to where we could be now. Um, I only found this out recently. Uh, that my mother graduated with a degree in mathematics and computer science in the late 1960s and she couldn't get a job because they weren't hiring women for those jobs and if they were hiring women for those jobs they were only paying them half of what they were paying the men and they had the full expectation that they would be leaving very quickly to have children and you know she was like look this is what was available this is what I wanted to do and and this is how we had to start. But she took that understanding of things and really, you know, I have several brothers and sisters and really wanted each of us to be able to pursue something that we loved. And it is very difficult to let your children or let the people that you supervise become their best person. And I will say she and a mentor that I had early on in my career, a man named Dr. Randy Rozier, would say, I don't want you to become me. I want you to become your best you. And and that is a mantra that as an adult, I've been trying to embrace more and more. And particularly as a parent, um, as a leader, it's hard to, to let people sort of follow what they do best and help that to grow. And I give her tremendous credit. My siblings and I are all very different. We do very different things, but everybody loves what they do. They love the direction of their lives. We're very tight with each other. We help each other. And I give a tremendous amount of credit for that to my mother, because I know she suffered through a lot of things with us and showed tremendous patience to let us get to those points on our own.
1: How do you nurture that? How do you pe- how do you help people find uh, you know their their own path in their best life?
2: So I think some of that is getting to know them as a person. Um, there's so much. I always ask people when I when I'm trying to mentor them or they're asking me questions about you know how do they go this way in a career? Um, who, what do you love? What brings you joy? Where are your passions? And then how do we work as connectors to try to help you have those experiences to let you pursue those passions. If we can connect you with your passion, it will sustain you. And and it may not be the direction that I want to go. My daughter will kill me for this. So I have a 16 year old daughter and I, I love her for the fact that she really thinks in a different way than almost anybody. Like she thinks outside the box. She's just, she often will just nail with exact biting words the, 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 the core of the moment. And there are times as a parent, you're just like, oh, please, I just don't say that out loud. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> but at the same time, I value that. And it's it's being able to realize that nothing in life is perfect. And are, we actually are best in life when we allow ourselves to to engage with one another and make mistakes and make progress and, and really find the joy in what we do. If, if you get everybody moving that direction, most of the time we're seeing success and we're seeing happiness. And and that, you know, it's, it's what you value in life. And I think that you're really trying to help people you're mentoring to find what it is that they find value in and helping them get to that point.
1: Yeah, I love what you said about the importance of making mistakes, you know. Okay. Before this lightning round, we were talking about you know the success of breakthroughs and how important that is. But I mean, you know, as a doctor, your job is so high stakes. I mean, you know, truly, life can be on the line. How do you deal with
2: um, with with mistakes, with with potential failures? So you know that that's actually really difficult. I was at a meeting this weekend, and we were talking about in science, we make many errors before we wind up on the first in the correct pathway because we're not sure where to go. Whereas in medicine, we don't give ourselves that forgiveness on things. And especially for a lot of what I do in, in cancer care and you know sarcoma care and treating of uh, metastatic disease, cancer that's spread to the bones and, and rare bone diseases, there isn't an answer necessarily. And so we have to you know, use the principles that we have. We have to work with our colleagues and work with the patient to try to make the best decision together. But we also have to forgive ourselves as practitioners and also forgive the patient because sometimes they, they, they have a different vision for how they want to go. And in order to come to some of these answers, it's it's definitely a challenge. I mean, there are, there are cases with every case, I ask myself, you know, what went well and what could have gone better. And the good news is, most of the time, things went pretty well. But there's always something that could go better. Maybe it's how I communicated with the nurse in the room. Maybe it's how I, um, you know, helped the family afterwards, or how I positioned the patient for the X-ray technician. Like, there's always little refinements you can make, and it's important to do that as you you mature in your career. Um, but it also is good to recognize there are many things that, that go well and, and how we build upon those moments that go well. Uh, there are always cases that every, every physician as you progress in your career, there are cases that live with you forever. And sometimes there was no answer and it's the, it's the frustration of there not being an answer and not being able to provide that, that moment of help that you would love to. And there, we're human beings. We, we make human errors. And there are many times that we, we don't have a lot of great choices in front of us. One of my mentors at Sloan Kettering, Dr. John Healy, would say, um, it's an apple or an orange. They're both rotten, and you have to put your nickel down and play. <laughs> and, wow. and I understood what he meant, though. And sometimes they're not great choices in front of us but you have to make one and build off of it. And that's, that I think is the, the lesson it took. It takes a while to learn that as a physician and as a surgeon, but if you can approach things that way and help the families approach things that way, and just, you know, let them know there, if I were to pick for me, there's things that I would pick for me. But my job is not to pick for you. My job is to help educate you what the options are and help you pick for you. And you know, nothing is even, cancer care and and trauma care really represent that because we all have different values to what's important to us and and what choices we would make for our own lives. And you, you have to learn how to respect those choices and, and really know that in the end, we're, we're, we're helping a lot of people. My, somebody asked my son when he was four, what does your mother do? And he said, she helps really sick people feel better. And I appreciate that more than you can imagine, because you know a lot of my patients, they die eventually. A lot of my patients have really significant impediments in their lives because of the diseases they have or the injuries they've had. But we can do things to improve their quality of life, and try to make their lives better. Can
1: I ask you about one of the most memorable cases in your life, and what the lesson there was?
2: In, t- in terms of things that did not go well? No, no, just, you <laughs> okay. know, in general,
1: like you said, you know, as a physician, stories, patients, cases stick with you. And so, you know, what's, what's one that comes to mind for you?
2: So. I, I tell people this story all the time. I had a young lady when I was still in practice at the University of Rochester who had bone cancer, osteosarcoma, and she was in high school at the time. She really powered through it. It's a year long between treatment, chemotherapy, and surgery, and recovery, and more chemotherapy, and she really powered through it, and I was so proud of her because she stayed in high school, and she did really well in her classes. And you know she had been a soccer player and this was gonna change her life forever, but she found different things that she was interested in um, and actually went on to graduate high school and had started in college and nursing school. And she called me December 23rd and said, I coughed up blood. And the first thing that came to my mind, she's in nursing school, she's doing clinical rotations. I'm like, oh my God, you have tuberculosis which at the time was, we were having some problems with in in our community. And I brought her in to get an x-ray figuring, okay, how are we going to deal with this? You're still a little immune challenged. And she had tumor in her chest several years later, just something that doesn't happen commonly. And we didn't have really any solutions for her. Like that moment, you know, we could slow things down, but we were not going to change the destiny of things. And she would always come into her visits with her mother. Now she's older. She came back to, so she went back into some treatments and and was working her way along. And she came into my office by herself, which I remember thinking, "Gosh, that was odd." And she asked for the last appointment of the day. And I walked in, and I'm like, "You know, how are you?" And she said, "I need to talk to you about how I'm going to die." I'm like, what? And, and she realized that, you know, her time was coming. It wasn't right then and there, but it was coming. And she said to me, if I die at home, my mother will never, ever be able to go into that room again. And they have hospice for 20 year olds, but they do for kids, but they do not have hospitals for hospice for people in their 20s. She's like, I visited the hospices in town and everybody's like 50 to 80 years old. Where, where do I go? what do I find? Like, how do I have this conversation with my parents? And, you know, as we talked through it, I I questioned her on a few things. And she said, Hey, look, it's up to me what I do with my time in between. Are you happy with your time in between? Are you doing what you want to be doing with your time in between? And I tell people, you know, I helped, I helped her find what worked for her. Like she found a place we we wound up founding a place even within the hospital that we modified things so it could create a young adult experience and she created a legacy in that hospital because they now recognized that need and were able to mold around with her guidance a place for young adults to have hospice care but she made me really think about what am i doing with my time in between and I realized I wasn't happy with where I was at that moment, and that is part of the reason I wound up in California. I had hit the ceiling of growth, both personally and professionally, where I was in upstate New York, and and it was time for me to go. And and I, I forever will remember that moment. I remember when those words came out of her mouth, because for me that was life changing, and you know for her, it, in the end. We lost her, but she will be with me forever.
1: What a beautiful story. I guess I shouldn't be surprised there are so many life lessons, um, you know, in this business of saving lives or improving the quality of life. But it just seems like there
2: are so many. Well, that's the joy. I mean, the science is great. The medicine is great. It's the people. That's the best part. And it's one of the reasons I'm excited to be in San Diego is it's a, it's a different community. And I every time I come to a new city, I guess I've been fortunate enough in my life to have moved several times. And every time I come to a new city, I love getting to know the people that make up that community because there's such richness there in their history, in what brought them together. I mean, that's one of the best parts about the United States is, we are a mix of people from all over. Even if you're coming from different states, you know, mixing Oklahoma and Nebraska and Minnesota and New York and California, and Northern California and Southern California, you, we bring such a rich um, history and culture with us. And, and you know, I, I talk. One of my missions as an orthopedic chair. So I'm. I I came down to UC San Diego Health to become the chair of the Department of Orthopedics. And one of the huge honors for me is I'm only the fourth woman in the United States to become a chair of an orthopedics department. I have always been passionate about helping young women and girls understand what they can do in STEM fields, in medicine, in science, just to let them see that it's possible. I'm I'm not a big person. I'm small. And it's. I tell people, it's brains and power tools, and it's the greatest thing ever. I have the best toolboxes you could possibly imagine, um, but getting people to realize that they can do these things, and it's fun when you're growing up to play and learn and, and have exposure to these experiences. I also recognize that we need to represent our community. We need surgeons. Like Very, very few women are in orthopedics, but more than half of the patients we see are women. We need that voice in how we practice and how we provide care and how we make decisions. And these decisions are everywhere from what Medicare decides should get paid for versus what kinds of resources are available. And and women and men sometimes have different needs. Families have different needs. People of different cultural backgrounds have different needs. And we need to be able to tap into that in our community of providers so that we can represent the community that we provide for. And and I really am passionate about getting opportunities for people of tremendous diverse backgrounds to understand all of the amazing things that you can do in musculoskeletal health, whether you're a scientist or an engineer or a cast tech, or a surgical technician who hands us things in the operating room, or you run the x-ray machines, or you're a nurse who's taking care of our patient or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or helping people set up their homes or designing prostheses for people who've had an amputation. I mean, this, there's so many different things you can do, things that are very hands-on craft oriented where we need artists and things that are require a tremendous amount of schooling that we need people with passion and persistence and to create the support structure to get people to, to those areas. And, and that's that I think is something that's really important about getting to know a community and, and learning how to engage with people in the community.
1: Dr. Bukata, is there anything else that you uh, would like to add, just any closing thoughts?
2: Well, I, I think the one thing I would say is that, uh, a lot of the mantra that both my parents taught. So I I think I was very lucky in that my father was very visual and creative and my mother was very fact oriented. So I tell people that they wanted to know they were getting their money's worth from my very expensive education. So I had to explain what I was doing in a very visual way, grounded in facts in a 30 second soundbite. And in, in some ways, when I think about the world, many things distill down to that. What is really important? And, and COVID and has been such a stressor for all of us at home, in the medical community, in our communities. And, and we, we have to remember the we in this and that that is what makes us great. And I, I will tell you my whole life, my whole career, was because people included me in the we. And, and you know, if that's the one thing that I can say to people is, you know, as we get frustrated with things, if we constantly just go back to the word we, overall, we're gonna be fine.
0: Thank you again, doctor, for joining me and thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego. We'll be back with a new episode next week.